Welcome in. We're glad you're joining us for the latest edition of the Delaware Bible Cast, a podcast ministry from Delaware Bible Church. I'm Brad Harris, and I am blessed to serve as pastor of administration and outreach at Delaware Bible Church. I'm blessed to again share a podcast with you here today. And today we are going to be looking at the second part of our study on soteriology, on the doctrine of salvation. Now this is going to be the last of our podcast broadly overviewing this doctrine, but you will see several of the pieces of doctrine that we're going to be looking at today here in later podcast episodes as we continue to work through what we believe as a church. So as we look at this study, last week we studied the humbling doctrines of election, and calling as followers of Christ made possible by God through Christ's finished work on our behalf. And we began our time by looking at what our doctrinal says specifically about salvation, and that's again how we're going to begin our time here together as we look at point number six in our doctrinal statement. Again, our doctrinal statement is available at DelawareBible.org by going to the About What We Believe It's available by contacting me, Pastor Brad, or it's available by contacting the church office, and we will make sure that we get you a copy of that. Point number six of our doctrinal statement says this, We believe that salvation is the gift of God, brought to man by grace and received by personal faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, whose precious blood was shed on Calvary for the forgiveness of our sins. A couple verses that we share right underneath that statement. John chapter 1, verse 12, which says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 through 19. Say, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways, inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Let's look at this verse specifically here in 1 Peter, and let's review from last week. As we shared last week that we believe that salvation is a gift from God that can only come from God. Now this verse says that we were ransomed. Defined, this means that we were released by making a payment demanded. And that payment that was needed to be made was from the futile, or defined as incapable of producing any useful result. So looking at this verse, there was a payment that needed to be made, and that we were futile in our ways of making this, or that we didn't have any useful results to be able to make it. And this was inherited from our forefathers. Our forefathers here are speaking of Adam and Eve's disobedience and sin against God, that has left us with the stain of sin and has left us incapable of having a relationship with God and incapable of producing any spiritual fruit in our relationship with Him. Salvation is a gift, gifted to us by God through Jesus Christ, as our doctrinal statement says. And as well, it is brought to man by grace and received by personal faith in Jesus Christ, whose precious blood was shed on Calvary for the forgiveness of sins. Again, in 1 Peter 1, 18-19, we see that gift of Jesus' precious blood. And we see that Jesus' blood was precious, 
not by an earthly measure, but by a spiritual measure. As we talked about last week, Jesus' blood, as he took on flesh and blood, was the same as yours and mine physically. He could bleed. He had the ability to do that and had blood flowing through his body just like you and I do. But his blood was precious in the fact that it was sinless. So in a spiritual sense, his blood was the only blood that could truly save us from our sins. He was the only sacrifice that could atone for our judgment, for our sin problems. And nothing can ransom us. Nothing can atone for our sins outside of the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, as I think of that, I like to think of an illustration that was once shared with me that I'd like to share with you. Let's imagine for just a moment here that we take a break from our podcast here together and we decide to go over to the Delaware County Transfer Station, better known as the Dump, which is right off US 42. Once we get there, you decide to walk amongst the trash and amongst the garbage. Now, after a few months, you tell me that you want to stay there and that you would like to live there instead of the beautiful home that you live in now. Now, at that point, I'm going to be honest. I think that you're crazy. And I think that you're even crazier when you tell me that not only are you going to live there, but that you love the dirt, the grime, the filth there so much that fills the garbage up in that dump. You love it so much that you are willing to die for it. Now, as outrageous and as crazy as that sounds, that's exactly what Jesus did for you and I. He left the glories of heaven, the pearly gates, the streets of gold, the mansions. He left his heavenly Father to come here and live amongst us, to minister to us despite our sin, our shame, our garbage, our baggage. He left heaven to deal with our disobedience, our wrongs against him, our sin. And not only did he live amongst us and minister for, to us, he died for us. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5.21 that God for our sake made him, that being Jesus, to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, so that now all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And so as we summarize what we believe within our doctrinal statement, the next thing that we want to do is look through that work that Jesus does of regeneration. And through Jesus' work, we are regenerated. To be regenerated means to be renewed or to be restored. Through Christ's finished work, as we call upon the name of the Lord for salvation, we are renewed in our relationship with God. Heath Lambert, in A Theology of Biblical Counseling, which again I mentioned last week, is going to be the main outline that we work through for this study. And it's one that I'm going to be citing from several times again today because I just see how practical it is. And it's just been an incredibly helpful book for me as we study theology, just generally speaking, and how we can practically apply God's Word, plus the counseling side as well. But he says this, Regeneration is the sovereign and invisible work of God the Holy Spirit 
transforming us from people who are opposed to him to people who love him. This is the work of God that changes a general call into an effective call. Again, reviewing a general call is sometimes called the gospel call. This is the external call that we hear. It's the general proclamation of the gospel that goes out to everyone who hears it. Every time the gospel is faithfully proclaimed, whether publicly or amongst a few personally, that is the general call of God. The effective call, then, is the work of God through the power of the Holy Spirit to call a person to repentance through the power of the Holy Spirit as only he can do. So again, regeneration is the sovereign and invisible work of God, of the Holy Spirit, transforming us from people who are opposed to him to people who love him. This is the work of God that changes that general call, where we're hearing it, into an effective call where we're responding to it. A person who hears the gospel preached and whose heart is not changed to love Christ has received the general call. A person who hears the gospel and whose heart is changed to love Christ has received the effective call. And as we receive the effective call, we are regenerated. And as we talked about last week, particularly when we talked about calling and election, we see the beauty of God and that we have our purpose and God has his. We have our role and so God has his as well. God is sovereign in saving the person and calling them and predestinating them. But man is responsible to take that call, to act on it, to affirm it, and to trust in Jesus Christ alone as his Savior. We call upon the name of the Lord for salvation, and God regenerates us. It is a process that is active on both sides, and it's a beautiful process. Now, the word regeneration appears just twice in the New Testament. One of those is in Titus 3.5, which shares with us that he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Back in the Old Testament in the book of Ezekiel, it says in Ezekiel 36.26-27, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. As we think of the doctrine of regeneration, we see that through regeneration we are given life that previously was not there. It's life that is gifted to us by God for the glory of God. And this new life is given to us by God through Christ alone, through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the only way that this can work. It's the only way that we can truly be regenerated, that we can be brought to life. Next, we're going to move to that doctrine of conversion. So, so far we've talked about regeneration, and now we're going to talk about how we get converted. And again, remember that as we look at these doctrines, all of them dovetail together. It's how God works and that all of these things work together perfectly and completely for our good and for God's glory. 
And as we look at these doctrines, and as we see this beautiful process of how God saves us, as we've talked about election, call, and regeneration, these have been doctrines where God is active, and outside of us calling upon the name of the Lord for salvation, we are passive. But as we look at conversion, we're going to talk about specifically how we are active in this process. Now, God is always active. He's always working through all of these. But as God is sovereign and man is responsible, man is responsible as it comes to conversion, man acts as he is prompted by God. Now, again, I want to read a section from Heath Lambert on this doctrine, and this is one that I believe adequately and very well sums up this doctrine of conversion. Lambert shares with us this, Conversion, the next aspect of salvation, is the first work that requires activity on the part of the elect person. In order to experience conversion, a person must know something of his own sinfulness before a holy God who demands perfection. He must know something of the righteousness of Christ, who lived a perfect life to earn our righteousness, who died an agonizing death to pay our penalty, and who arose from the grave as evidence of his victory over death. A potential convert must know something of God's holy character, his own sinful breaking of God's law, and about Jesus' work as Savior. These elements will typically be heard in the general call, the preaching of the gospel message. Conversion requires more than knowledge and agreement with these facts. Assent to information is essential but not enough. In order for a person to be converted, they must possess repentant faith. Repentance and faith have been called the twin pillars of the Christian life because they are each required in order to convert. When the Apostle Paul summarizes his ministry to the Ephesian elders, he says it was one of testifying both to the Jews and to the Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, Acts 20, 21. Sometimes the biblical witness emphasizes the necessity of repentance in this partnership, while at other times it emphasizes faith. Yet both are essential. Hebrews 11 begins with a description of what faith is. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. The rest of chapter 11 teaches us that faith is trusting in God and his word in the face of, the, of realities that are unforeseen. Faith is trusting that God made the world even though we can see the creation but not the creator. Noah had faith to listen to God and to build an ark even through the cataclysmic flood was unforeseen. Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Sarah, and many others had faith, though they never received the things that they were promised, but greeted them from afar. Faith is a confident trust in the character of God to believe what he says. The kind of faith that is necessary for conversion is trust in God's verdict about our sin and trust in his promise about what God has done for us because of that sin. 
So how do we define faith? It is a confident trust in the character of God to believe what he says, to believe what the Bible says about Jesus Christ, who he is and what he's done for us, to believe that God is the creator and the sustainer of all things, to believe that the Holy Spirit will indwell within us and allow us to bear spiritual fruit. Now, while conversion is a process in which we are active in, next we're going to focus on that of justification. And justification is again one that dovetails with these others, but one that we are passive in. So as we have faith and we trust in God, as we are converted, we are also justified. And to be justified means that something is made to be right, to be correct, or to be reasonable. In theology, it is described as being made righteous in the sight of God. Now let's imagine for a moment that we are in a courtroom. And the judge is trying us for all of our sins, for every sin that we have ever committed. Now you know standing there that you are guilty, that you are going to receive a death sentence. But suddenly, a man steps forward who has never committed any crimes, who is undeserving of death, who is undeserving of paying the penalty for your crimes. And he chooses to take on your full penalty. He chooses to pay it off in full so that you will not be touched, you will not be harmed, you will not have to pay a dime of this. Now the judge agrees to that, and the man is sent away to death. Now as we think of that illustration in a spiritual sense, that is what Christ has done for us. Because of Christ paying our penalty, we are made legally right in the sight of God the Father. One time I had a professor who shared it in a way similar to this. We've all heard of the phrase of someone being optimistic, looking at things with rose-colored glasses. But yet when we are justified, God sees us with Christ-colored glasses. He no longer sees our sin and our guilt, but he sees Christ standing in our place. And it is through Christ alone that we are declared righteous to God the Father. It is for us, active in sharing to God that we trust in him as our Lord and and Heavenly Father. But yet as we do that, trusting in Christ's finished work on our behalf, then this legal process is done that we are passively involved in, that is given to us by God. Romans chapter 5, verse 1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have peace. We no longer have to pay the penalty. Romans 8.30 says, And whom he predestined, he also called. And whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. We'll talk about glorification here in a little bit, but it's going to be the final doctrine that we study today and one that we will study in later podcasts as well. Titus 3.7 says, So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That word heirs means a person that is legally entitled to something. Our legal status has been turned from guilty to innocent, and God has made us his sons and daughters. We literally went from the most dire and wicked of realities 
eternal separation with God, a place that we were destined to go called hell, to the greatest inheritance that we could ever receive, eternal life that is found in God through Christ as his children. And as we think about that, we see in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5, where it says that he predestined us for ado- adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. This shares with us that doctrine of being adopted. We are adopted into God's family, that God predestined us to be his children, just as he predestined us as well to have the earthly parents that we have. Yet to a much greater extent, he has predestined us, and spiritually, he is our father. Galatians chapter 4, verses 5 through 7 say, To redeem those who are under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons and daughters, and because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. That word Abba being translated to Daddy denoting a relationship of personal intimacy, of great care. God is not just a faraway, heartless and absent father. No, he is intimately caring, loving, and involved within our lives. We have been adopted into God's family. And that next point then is of sanctification. God has adopted us and he is sanctifying us. He is continuing to do a work within our hearts and lives. And that is the lifelong process of a person growing in Christ-likeness. And we're really going to focus on this doctrine again in depth later as we continue to go on through other podcasts. But let's look at it again, just here for a bit, and summarize it here today. As sanctification is the lifelong process of growing in Christ-likeness in our entire being, It's continuing for us to bear more and more spiritual fruit. Now this is again is a doctrine where we are active. God is always active. And as we strive to put off our unregenerate flesh and put on Christ, as we strive to walk in obedience, then we are active. Philippians chapter 2 verse 12 says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now... Not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And as I think of that verse, I like to think of a weightlifter. Let's imagine that we're going to go bench press for the first time. And as we begin, we can't bench a lot of weight. Maybe we just have the bar, or maybe we just have just a few smaller weights that we're putting on the bar to push up through to exercise our chest muscles with. Yet as we continue to bench, as we continue to regularly put in the spiritual practices of prayer, of spending time in God's word, of meditating on truth, of saying no to sin, of saying yes to Christ and walking in obedience, of attending church, of fellowshipping with other believers, of being held accountable by them, as we continue to pump those spiritual muscles up, 
Pretty soon, God continues to give us strength and stamina until one day we can be a world-class weightlifter where we can be pumping this iron, where it's a regular practice that we're doing and we are seeing great results to the glory of God through. God continues this lifelong process of sanctification. And it's one that we can all affirm that we're not perfect in. None of us are, none of us ever will be until we reach glory. But it is one that God does a great work in our heart and our life in. And it's one that he allows us to be able to minister to others through. So after sanctification, we come to perseverance. Now, again, with these final doctrines that we're going to look at, they're going to be ones that we really focus on in the future, but they are also a part of soteriology. And later when we talk about eternal security, we're going to really be focusing on all the specifics of perseverance. But to briefly summarize it, to persevere means to continue in a course of action even when there is difficulty. I think if we study the Bible for any amount of time, or if we've walked with the Lord for any amount of time, we know that the Bible is clear that Christians will face difficulties in this life. That there are hard things that we must endure, but if we are truly followers of Christ, we will be kept by the grace of God and will remain saved forever. God upholds us with his powerful, with his glorious hand. He is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. He is holy. He is perfect. And when he says that he will take care of his children, he will. John chapter 10, verses 27 through 29, Jesus is speaking, and he says this, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. No one can pluck us from the hands of God. His hands are powerful, they are firm, they are strong. And in a real sense, if we are truly followers of Jesus Christ, we know our final outcome. And praise God, it's good. It's a good one. It's a great one. A person who is truly a follower of Christ will remain a follower of Christ. Those who are truly followers of Christ have a desire to follow him, to follow him in lifelong obedience. Now again, I want to quote from Heath Lambert here in his book, A Theology of Biblical Counseling, one that I cannot recommend highly enough. And that's because I think that he has so many good and practical things to share on these doctrines that I think that we often know, but that we fail to apply. Regarding perseverance, he shares this, Our perseverance is based on the faithfulness of God. God demonstrates his own glory and faithfulness in preserving for eternity those whom Christ has bought with his blood. When a person insists that Christians could lose their salvation They may intend to be making a statement about the seriousness of sin, but they are actually making a statement about the faithfulness of God. The doctrine of perseverance teaches that God is a faithful and loving Father who does not permit His children to be lost. 
the doctrine of perseverance, does not teach that people remain in their Christian faith regardless of any sinful attitudes and actions on their part. In fact, the biblical teaching on perseverance requires that Christians must continue in the faith in order to demonstrate the authenticity of their faith. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 14 says, For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. See Colossians 1.23 and Hebrews 3.12. The evidence that Christians have been saved is that they demonstrate God's faithfulness to them and their faithfulness over time. The doctrine of perseverance teaches that those who have been truly saved have been truly changed so that they desire to follow Christ in lifelong obedience. Those who appear to, quote, fall away from Christ demonstrate that they were never in Christ to begin with. Quote, they that went out from among us, but they were not of us, for if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out, that it might become plain that they are that they all are not of us. That's from first John chapter two, verse nineteen. Lambert continues on by sharing this teaching may raise questions for some Christians who struggle with doubts about their salvation, wondering if they will ultimately persevere in the faith or quote fall away. This is a key issue in counseling. Doubts like this can bring serious pain in the lives of people who experience them. We can respond to such doubts in two ways. The first is by helping struggling ones to grow their faith in God. Doubts about the loss of one's salvation almost always trace back to an unhelpful focus on individual experience. Let me again repeat that. Doubts about the loss of one's salvation almost always trace back to an unhelpful focus on individual experience, on a focus on self. Our experience of salvation is important, but our faith is not founded on our experience, but on the work of God. Praise the Lord for that. We need to remind people of the grace of God in electing them and effectively calling them and giving them new hearts and justifying them and in adopting them as his own sons and daughters. These are God's works and his faithfulness is at stake in whether he upholds his word and his works. We must point people to confidence in God's abilities to keep them As his children, despite their doubts and difficulties, God remains faithful despite our unfaithfulness. The final paragraph he shares. Having laid a foundation about salvation, we should examine the experiences of those who are struggling with doubts. They may have doubts because their experience of salvation is not genuine. They may have doubts, or they may, may have made a profession of faith, yet failed to actually possess faith in Christ alone for salvation. If that is true, then faithfulness would require us to point them to the importance of repentant faith in Christ that truly saves. Perhaps they have doubts because though they are truly saved, they are struggling with serious sin. In that case, we must help them to grow in grace through the process of sanctification, 
of becoming more like Christ. We've looked at these different doctrines of sanctification, of perseverance, of election, of adoption, of predestination, of calling. Now finally, we're going to look at that of glorification. And again, we will focus on glorification later as we study the doctrine of end times. And we may even see some foreshadowing of it as we study anthropology, the doctrine of man in future weeks. But glorification is known as the time when Christ returns to reunite the souls of believers with their bodies. It's at that time that God gives us, as followers of Christ, new, perfected, resurrected bodies. When we are glorified, that is when our salvation is complete, as we no longer have unregenerate flesh that we live in, but we have new, perfect, sinless bodies. This is the final part of the salvation process. And it's also the final part of Romans chapter 8, verse 30, where it says, In those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, listen to this carefully, we shall be like him. Because we shall see him as he is. When can we see him as he is when we no longer have this sin-stained flesh anymore? When our souls and our bodies are both perfect and found in Christ. Finally, the last verse I'll share for today. Philippians chapter 3, verses 20 through 21. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. We await our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is going to transform us God who is going to subject everything to himself as he rules and reigns over all. The Holy Spirit who continues to work in us, sanctifying us, drawing us to Christ, and allowing us to walk in obedience to him. It's important for us personally and as we talk to others and as we walk with them through their faith journey to continue to to point them to who Christ is and not who they are to help them to move their eyes off themselves, to help them to put off their sinful flesh and put on Christ. Praise the Lord for God's provision, his sovereignty, who he is and what he's done for us. Praise the Lord that we no longer have to live in these sins, but that we can have a personal relationship with him through the gift of Jesus' precious blood. And praise the Lord that we can help others as well, ministering to them and being able to share these truths with them so that they can get their eyes off themselves and on Christ. That's my prayer for each of us this week, that we would get our eyes off of ourselves and on Jesus Christ, the author, finisher, and perfecter of faith, the one who is in, who has ushered in salvation for us. And so we praise God, we praise Jesus, we praise the Holy Spirit today. And we thank him for these truths that we've studied. Again, it's always a joy and a privilege to share with you, but I've really enjoyed working through the process of salvation. 
We'll continue to share with you upcoming podcasts of what we believe. We hope and pray that this is effective and helpful. If you have any other comments or things that you would like to share, you're always invited to contact me. B. Harris at DelawareBible.org. That's B H A R R I S at D E L A W A R E B I B L E dot O R G. Thanks again for listening in. Hope it's a wonderful week ahead for you.